God the Son had to come to the earth, take on our humanity. Didn't stop there, you know, not the baby in the cradle, but lives righteously under the law so he can die as a sacrifice for your sins and mine and then rise gloriously from the grave. So he's the second Adam. He's the first man of a new generation, a new race, if you will, that's going to inhabit eternity with God the Father. That's why the incarnation. And so we'll see some of the need for that this morning. That's where we're going. Let me pray if we get started. Father, Jesus' life and knowing you, being in relationship with you, is life. And we desire you. And Lord, it's your spirit that takes your word, makes those things real to us, enlightens us, enlivens us. And we ask that we would experience more of that this morning. Help us to value you, Lord. Help us to draw near to you, to experience you drawing near to us, to value the gift that is Christ, that is that relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've probably all met someone at some point in life um, where we hear their story and life's been hard for them and they they really sounds like they deserve our sympathy um, it sounds like if you hear their story life has just been really hard and they just need a second chance they, they need somebody to come alongside them and, and help them so they can get another start and life will get better and I met such a gentleman several years ago and sat down with, with a guy who was, was a stranger to me but had been recommended by someone else, sat down with him, listened to his story. He basically lost everything. He lost his family, his finances, his job, fellowship. And it was a sad, sad story. This guy appears superbly contrite, very tearful, clearly emotionally in pain. And so I hear a story and I, and I think this is a guy who... Life's been hard, because it is sometimes, right? Life deals with setbacks. It is a challenge. Life's been hard, and he needs another chance. You know, he needs somebody to come and help him. And so I started meeting with this guy. I met with him for some long period of time and prayed for him, gave him money, tried to help him get back on his feet, you know, restart life. And, and what I came to find at the end of all that was that life wasn't his problem. You know what his problem was? He was his problem. Life wasn't his problem. He was his problem. And after all the time I spent with him and all the labors and all the finances and the help, um, he was the same at the end of all that that he was at the beginning because life wasn't his challenge. He was his problem. There's a famous saying, sort of famous, by Abraham Lincoln. And it's this that every man owns his own face after 40 years old. So, now I confess, I thought you guys would laugh when you saw this. <laughs> you know, you're born with your looks, right? Your attributes, they're given to you. But Lincoln's point was, you determine what you look like over time. This guy's obviously a drug addict, and that's what meth will do to you in only a few years. Lincoln's point was, your outside starts to look like your inside. You know, that certain point in life you've lived long enough that it's the fruit of your choices that you start seeing. So we're this morning, we're in the Heroes and Villains series. If you remember, this series is about aspiring nobly with folks in the Bible, like you'll see in Hebrews 11, who lived like 
Jesus the superhero, which just meant faithfully to God, living lives of faithfulness to God. That's what it looks like to be heroic in the faith. Versus villains, people who lived as villains in the Scripture, and they were typified by faithlessness, like Satan, that arch enemy, not only of Jesus, but of you and I as well. And we're looking at a villain this morning, and I'm not sure what your take on Esau is, but I hope at the end of this morning in the message that you'll see Scripture paints Esau as a villain related to God. He's not a nice guy who needs a second chance. He's painted in the pages of Scripture as a villain because of faithlessness. And this is where we're going at the end. Because he's a carnal, unsaved man. What you see in the life of Esau, this is the life of someone who's not in relationship with God. There's been no regeneration. There's new, no, no new nature. There's no spirit. There's been no reconciliation with God. And so the life that you see in Esau is your life and mine apart from Christ and redemption. And it's the lives of many people that we know or will yet come to meet. And it's not that they need another chance. They need a new life. They need repentance. They need restoration. They need regeneration. Because as long as we only have that old Esau kind of life, <clears throat> we'll always get an Esau kind of outcome. That's what you'll see in his life this morning. So, starting with Esau and just a little backstory. You remember that his dad, Isaac, finally got his bride, Rebecca. This was a happy day. Isaac's 40 when he gets his bride. They're husband and wife for about 20 years and they're unable to have kids. So this is Genesis 25 and the Scriptures we're looking at this morning are primarily there. You want to turn there, you're welcome to. Genesis 25, this is starting at verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. She's barren. The Lord granted his prayer. Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it's like this, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. That's a good idea, right? I'm confused in life. This is a good this is a good formula. I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. I should ask God. That's a good thing. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So we'll continue that in a moment. But God says the, the turmoil you're feeling in the womb is actually a precursor of what's to come. Because the baby's sort of at odds in your womb they prefigure the fact that they're going to come out. One's going to be stronger, but the older's going to serve the younger, but there will be contention between them. And it won't just be between them. It will, between, it will also be between their descendants after them. So that's all the precursor here, these little fellows wrestling in the womb. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau, and in the Hebrew, Harry and Esau sound similar. It's a play on words. Verse 26, afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called, <clears throat> excuse me, Jacob, which means heel catcher, uh, by implication, the one that would supplant. Of course, this comes up later in their story. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, that word quiet means complete or having integrity or wholeness. 
dwelling in tents. And we've, we've got the family dynamics here. Unfortunately, verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. What you've got here, remember in the book of Genesis, you have basically all the major themes of the Bible are developed in the first book in Genesis. So you see the stories that start in Genesis, they're playing out through the rest of the Bible. So what Isaac finds in his life with his kids is exactly what he had had in his family. Do you remember Isaac is not the firstborn son of Abraham, he's the second. And you remember there's contention between Ishmael the eldest and Isaac the second born. And guess what happens in Isaac's life? He has two boys. And guess what? There's going to be contention between them and the firstborn is going to be in contention with the second born and in both cases it's not the firstborn and remember back in the day this is still somewhat the case today but not nearly as much the firstborn had all the rights all the privileges being the firstborn primogenitor first birth was a big deal and in both cases ishmael was not god's choice to carry on the abrahamic promise and covenant that leads us to jesus and neither was esau so you see the same dynamics between Isaac and Ishmael. Now they're going to occur between Jacob and Esau. And there's a description here. There's very little said, by the way. So you get the birth account, and then the boys are going to be grown. There's nothing about their childhood. But it tells us this in that chapter 25. It says Esau is a skillful hunter. Now we might say or think mistakenly he's a great outdoorsman. And that's where we would be wrong. He is an outdoorsman, but what we're meant to see is he is an untamed person. He is a wild person. You remember what God said of Ishmael? He will be a wild donkey of a man. That's just like Esau. He's untamed in the spiritual sense. He's not a complete man. He's a wild man, wild spiritually, still at odds, not just with a brother, but with God. Do you remember who the other hunter that we've already looked at in the book of Genesis was? So when we hear that term come up and it says Esau's a hunter, we're thinking of somebody back in Genesis 10, Nimrod. And is he a good guy? He's a hunter. He's the other hunter. So I'm hearing the same term. I'm thinking the same thing. He establishes Babylon and Nineveh, those two arch rivals of Israel and Judah. It's the same thought about contention through different family lines. Same thing you see going on here. Now, this is probably the most famous story about Esau, and it's key. It's key for him. It's key for us in understanding what kind of a person he was. So this is continuing in Genesis 25. This picks up at verse 29. So nothing about their childhood growing up. This is just where we start in. They're adults. Esau's already married at this point. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He's exhausted. Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. This says parenthetically, therefore his name was called Edom. And Edom means red and it's from in Hebrew Adam. Uh, Adam is Adam and we get Adam's name because he's made from the red stuff of the earth. So that's how Adam gets his name. So Esau his name becomes Edom as a nickname, if you will. Jacob said, so Esau's tired. He's come in. Jacob's got the food. One brother says to the other, hey, give me some of that food. I'm hungry. And this is a little odd. <clears throat> Jacob says, sell me your birthright. <laughs> the supplanter is at work here. 
I just want some stew. Well, sell me your birthright. Esau says, now listen to the words, I'm about to die. Do we really think he's about to die because he's missed a couple meals? No. Of what use is a birthright to me? So the birthright I don't get until dad dies. So when's dad going to die? I don't know. What's life going to be like then? I don't know. It's so far out there, I'm not worried about that. Jacob says, swear to me now. Jacob says, I'm not kidding. I want the birthright. So if you want the stew, you sell me the birthright. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. Now at this point, the story is kind of an odd window into the life of these two brothers, right? So one brother clearly is not thinking clearly, doesn't value what he should. The other brother's manipulative here. It's like, really? But the story doesn't end there because God tells us what we're supposed to think. The text says, thus Esau despised his birthright. Now this is significant. We don't have to worry about what we're supposed to think. God tells us. Esau despised his birthright. That word means he treated something as insignificant or worthless. His birthright he treated as insignificant or worthless. Now remember what the birthright is. At the point of your father's death, the firstborn, the one that has the birthright, gets two times the estate of any other heir. So you get two times the stuff. So whatever that is, whatever kind of wealth that is, land, animals, whatever, you get two times the stuff. But you're also the replacement for your father. You're the one carrying on your father's name and role. So if you're a clan or a tribe or whatever, however big or widely spread your family group is, you, you become the patriarch. This was a high, high honor. It wasn't just about the stuff. I'm carrying on dad's name. I now stand in dad's place. What dad has built, I preserve. I'm acting in the name of my father as the firstborn, as the one with the birthright. Usually the paternal blessing went with that same blessing. So this was a great honor. The birthright is a big deal. And God tells us that Esau despised it. So put that as the reference. Esau despises his father. He doesn't venerate. He doesn't respect his father Isaac. He doesn't respect his name. He doesn't respect what he has or what he's built. He despised. He treated as little and insignificant what God counted as supremely important. Not just for himself, because it wasn't just about the stuff. It was about carrying on the relationship. This was huge for the Jews. It was carrying on the relationship. And remember, Isaac isn't just another guy on the earth. Isaac is in the line after Abraham of the promise God gave to Abraham and the covenant God gave to Abraham that through you, this is, this is twofold, but we'll just focus on one, that ultimately through you will come the Savior of the world, Christ. So the person that gets the birthright and the blessing from Isaac is the next link in the chain to bring about Jesus the Messiah. This is a big deal. And the text says Esau despises his birthright. This is not a good thing. This is not a good guy. He's not just troubled a little bit. Life hasn't been hard on him. He didn't value what God valued at all. 
Now, for a little bit of a point of application for you and me, if somebody said, what do you value? What would be at the top of your list? You're a Christian. And somebody says, what do you value? What would you say? So number one, just what would you say? What would be the first thing out of your mouth? The first thing on your mind? What do I value? <laughs> and, and yeah, Christ. So hopefully that's it. So if somebody said, well, uh, does your life bear evidence of that? How does your life bear evidence? If we say, oh, Christ is the most important thing. God's the most important thing. Does, is, is that in fact the truth for us? Does, does life bear that out? So Mike is banging his drum slowly again right now, okay? So I hope that every one of us gets up every morning and gives the first part of our day to the Lord by prayer and Scripture. We talk to God and God talks to us. And why would I say that? Because God's the most important thing in my day. Because the God's the most important thing in my life. You remember in giving, the Scripture was always clear in the Old Testament and the New. When you give to God, give from the first it's all God's it's all God's but you give to him from the first because you're saying God it's all yours I get to use some of it for our use that's good Lord my day is yours I'm taking my cues from you if you want to know what we prioritize in life you just look at your time and you look at your resources it's absolutely inarguable your priorities are reflected in what you do with your time and what you do with your resources you can't argue against this. If we look at our time and our resources, where does Jesus line up? Do we despise Him? Do we despise His things? Because we can. As Christians. Because we think little of Him. Just like Esau. And by the way, our old sinful nature, that's all we can do. Think of this too. Um, as Christians, so Christians, Christ, Christ is the Messiah. We are named as Christians after Christ, Jesus the Messiah. We bear His name. Is that meaningful to us? Does that affect the way we live our life to those who aren't Christ? This is a big deal too. Do you remember what God said to David through Nathan the prophet after his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah, her husband? He said several things, but what I'm thinking about here is God says you've brought judgment on your household in part because you've given the enemies of Israel occasion to blaspheme my name. God treats his name seriously, so does Jesus. David had brought dishonor on Yahweh's name and God judged him for it. The way you and I live says something about who and what we value. So if someone's looking at our life, would they be surprised to find out you or I are a Christian? Kathy and I were on the way home from our trip a couple weeks ago, stopped in a hotel, and I'm interacting with the gal that's checking me in. She's an older gal. I'm getting her backstory and, and uh, trying to be gracious and looking for opportunities to share the gospel. I said, God bless you on the way out the door, something like that. <laughs> Later, she, there's, this is dark. This is night. And there's a loud knock on our door. And I'm thinking, nobody knows we're here. Who is this? Well, it's Renee. And her whole countenance is different. And she says, you guys are smoking in the room. <laughs> she said, the alarm in my, our alarm's not going off. She says, the alarm in my office says, you guys are smoking in your room. And I was like, 
My wife's allergic to smoke. We don't smoke. We're not smoking. You can come in and look. And she says, no, it says so. And, and I was instantly angry. So check this out. God bless you. <laughs> and moments later, I didn't, I, mean, I didn't curse or anything, but my attitude suddenly became angry. I got up, you know, I'm totally convicted. <laughs> got up 10 minutes later to go knock on the door and apologize, and she wouldn't let me in. <laughs> that, was the, that was the end of that. So I'm thinking, I'm blessing her in God's name, then I'm angry 10 minutes later. This is not what I want. Are, are we careful? Do we keep our word? Do we honor our contracts and our agreements? Do we show up at work? You see what I'm saying. If we value Christ's name, it should reflect in the way we're living our life, what we're saying and what we're doing. Esau didn't value Isaac's name. And the last, and this isn't a stretch, if we value what God values, we value each other. So in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, which is our home, what's there from this earth? What goes into eternity? There's only one thing, right? It's us. Everything else, this present universe, this cosmos is consumed and God starts over. What God values is His children and people on the earth. Do you and I value brothers and sisters in the faith? You look at Esau and Jacob, they didn't value each other as brothers. There was always contention. And that's true always between the line of promise and the earthly or the merely carnal. But do we value each other? You know, you and I will offend each other all the time. We won't try, but we will. And sometimes maybe we even try. And we, we confess that and we make it right because those, that person that, that insulted me, they're God's child and I'm God's child. Do you think God loves His other children less than He loves me or you? He doesn't. If we're at odds with each other, again, it's that sense we don't value what God values. That looks like Esau, this man after the flesh, not Jacob, who of course will become, we'll see his transformation next time, who becomes a man of the Spirit. But Esau despised what God valued. And we want to make sure we're not living a life that looks like Esau's. Now, Esau was sorry about the way things fell out. You see this in Hebrews 12. This is interesting. You know, in this series, we've pointed out a number of people from Hebrews 11. The, chap, you know, the hall of fame, the hall of faith, the faithful people that we want to emulate. But you get to chapter 12, that's where we find Esau. He's not in chapter 11. He's in chapter 12. And he's in chapter 12 for a reason, because it's a warning about what not to do and what not to become. So listen to this, Hebrews 12 related to Esau. This is Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17. This is one of the warning passages in Hebrews, of which there are several. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The grace of God is free. Uh, Nobody fails to get the grace of God because God didn't offer it. It's because they rejected it. So he says, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. See to it. This is all, beware, beware, don't do this. See to it that there's no unholy person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. It was unholy. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, that's the story we covered last week with Isaac, that, that interaction between Jacob to get the blessing, tricking Isaac, his dad, and then, then Isaac blessing, realizing what he was saying to both Esau and Jacob. So later, when Esau desires to inherit the blessing, not the birthright, he sold the birthright, but he wants, to, he wants the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, when I was a young Christian, I read this passage, I felt sorry for Esau, because it says the poor guy wanted to repent and he couldn't. And that's not what the text means. Esau wanted to repent of what he lost. He lost the blessing. He lost what the blessing would have given him. What he didn't do is he didn't repent of what he despised. He was the same man. He was simply sorry for what he lost. He lost the blessing. What was the blessing? If you remember Isaac's words to Jacob, you get the dew of heaven. You get the fatness of the earth. You get the land of promise and you get the promise to Abraham. You're the next link in the chain. Esau wanted the stuff. And he's really sorry he didn't get it. And listen to this passage. This is truly pathetic. At Christmas, this is not a happy story, is it? This is truly pathetic. This is like Scrooge before his conversion, okay? This is Genesis 27. This is in the verses 34 through 38. So Esau, so he realized he'd been tricked. I don't get the blessing. I've lost the birthright. Now I've lost the blessing. He cries out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He says to his father, and we get the picture here of what he wants because it's just repeated. Bless me, even me also, father. Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me also, even me, O my father. Esau lifted up his voice and wept. I really want the blessing, dad. Can I not? There's no sorrow here about what he didn't value. It's sorrow over what he lost. And I want to say two things about this, and hopefully this comes out right. Uh, the first is this. Do you know that in your life and mine, there can be a time in which it's too late to repent? And let me qualify this, tell you what I mean. God's grace is always abundant and sufficient, right? If we sin and we confess our sin, God forgives us. We're good. No one can sin beyond the grace of God as a sinner. Paul said, I'm the worst sinner ever. God saved me to show he'll save anyone. We're not talking about salvation and we're not talking about forgiveness. What I am talking about are the fruits of our decisions. It's the fallout from some of the things we choose. You can make decisions in your life and I can just like Esau did. When he sold the birthright, he started the wheel rolling on everything that would follow. Everything started then. You and I can make decisions and we can repent before God, but we have to live with the consequences of what we've done. Uh, I had a friend several years ago. He and his family were coming to the church. Some of you will know who I'm talking about. Um, and a little bit of trouble, but they were growing and things seemed to be doing uh, better. He seemed to be doing better and... Uh, but he had a habit, he had a bad habit, and that was he abused alcohol. And so I got a call 
one time that uh, this young man was in the hospital. He was at KU Med, been transferred from, from uh, St. Francis. He'd gone out because he was ticked, and he got drunk. And he didn't get a little drunk. He got really drunk. And I was a firefighter at the time, and the, the guys that ran him on the call told me what the call was like on, on the highway, and that when they pulled up, they could smell alcohol. And I don't know if you've ever been at this, but you can smell Somebody is so intoxicated, you can smell it when you come up. And he broke his back, and he's been paralyzed from the waist down ever since. Now, he can repent all day, every day, but his back's broken, and it's not going to go away. There's, there's a time, there's a season for us to change our thinking, to change what we value. And we want to take that real seriously because we can make decisions that will make us there's a verse in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is sort of along this line. Jeremiah is a prophet who lives in a time in which God has said, Judah, you're going to be judged. You've gone past the point of repentance as a nation. I'm judging you, and there's no turning back. And it's stated really cryptically, I think it's Jeremiah 8.20. It says, harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. Summer, harvest is past, summer's end, we're not saved. It means there was a time that we could have been delivered from our sin and the judgment God's going to bring on us, and it's come, and it's gone, and we didn't respond, and we're headed into judgment. That's one thing from Esau. We can make decisions. It's not that God can't forgive or won't forgive. It's not that His grace isn't there. But we may be living with the consequences of something far, far longer than we would like. The other thing is this. Esau is pathetic in that story in Genesis. It's pathetic. If you could hear an actor do that, if you saw that lived out, it would tear at your emotions for sure. But having said that, this is a fallen person's version of sorrow. This isn't a believer's repentance 2 Corinthians 7:10 says this the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance or a change of mind of attitude towards what we've been doing that has no regret it leads to salvation godly sorrow changes our mind about how we see something we get God's perspective we're not just sorry that we lost something we're sorry for what we've done we see it in God's light we change our mind about it. And hopefully as Christians, that's something that happens to us all the time and progressively so. But Paul says, but there's a kind of sorrow that's of the world and it only brings more death. And that's Esau's sorrow. He really wanted the blessing and he really doesn't get it. And guys, when I say this, I don't want to in any way understate the impact that worldly sorrow can have on us. If you and I lose something apart from godly repentance, it can be world-changing. It can be consuming. It can break us down because we've lost something that we really, really wanted. And even though this kind of sorrow alone is deficient, it's not insignificant. In your life or in mine or the lives of other people we'll interact with, it's huge. It can feel like the end of the world. You know, for folks without Christ and without hope, 
This kind of crushing loss is sometimes what leads to people taking their lives because it is impactful. It's huge. I don't want to understate that. It's just not the kind of sorrow that produces life. It just produces more death. And that's what you see in Esau's case. Now, there's a reason why Esau is always doing the wrong thing. It's not life, it's him. Uh, in Jeremiah, it says, can a leopard change its spots? God's using that as a phrase to say, those who are sinning like this, they're just going to keep doing it. They're not going to change. Esau always makes the wrong decisions because Esau's the wrong kind of man because he's merely carnal. He has the nature he was born with, which is fallen. Remember that everyone born from Adam and Eve on, when we're born, we're born as cute as we are, as cute as you all were when you were born, as cute as your children and grandchildren are. They're born at odds with God. They're born separated from God because that's what we can pass on. That's what we have. That's Esau. Esau has no regeneration in these stories. He's a carnal man making carnal man choices. Back to, to Genesis and Nimrod, he's a hunter like Nimrod. He's not a shepherd like his dad or like his grandfather. This is from Genesis 28, and I'm just going to move through this. He marries two Canaanite women. Why is that significant? Why does the story tell us that? Why does God tell us that? When Abraham wanted a bride for Isaac, where did he get her? Was that a Canaanite woman? Abraham says, don't you dare get a wife for my son from here. You go back to Haran. You get her from the old family unit. We don't want the idolatrous women from the land. Esau is already married to two Canaanite women. They're idolaters. So he finds out that mom and dad don't like these gals. They're idolaters. So what does he do? He goes and he marries another woman that he thinks will please them. She's from the tribe of Ishmael. See, it makes sense in his mind. They don't like the Canaanites. Okay, I got that. So I'll go, I'll marry, I'll marry an Ishmaelite guy. Because she's related. But what's Ishmael? He's at odds with Isaac. And his tribe's at odds with Isaac. It's, this, it's a variation on the same theme. Every decision he makes is wrong because he's not regenerate. He's a carnal man doing the things carnal men do. He's not trying to miss the mark. It's his very nature. Let me run through a little bit where this goes to. Uh, Esau's descendants are the Edomites. We already read the text where it said they're the Edomites. Numbers 20, when Israel wants to go into the land of promise, they're going to go to the east side of the Jordan River. They've got to come up through the land of Edom. And the Edomites say, no way. Moses says, hey, don't worry. It's okay. We're going to go through. We're not going to bother anybody. We're not going to stay. We're just, we're just going to get through. And they say, no way, no how. And so that's why Israel has this much longer journey around the area south of the Dead Sea, south and east of the Dead Sea, to get back up to the place that they would enter the land of promise. Jeremiah 49 describes God's judgment, future judgment at the time, on Edom as like the destruction of God on Sodom. The book of Obadiah in the Old Testament, one chapter, very small, among the minor prophets, the whole thing on the book of Obadiah is God says, I'm judging Edom because of the way they treated Israel, Judah, during the Babylonian captivity. That contention that started, the carnal man and the man of the spirit are always at odds. This is brought up by Paul in Galatians. 
Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, famous verse quoted in Romans 9, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Jacob's my chosen and I love him. This isn't God being unfair to Esau. Esau here represents the nation of Edom in this time in which they again are persecuting the children of the promise. Herod the Great. In your Bible, it might say Herod the Great is an Idumean. And you say, man, what's an Idumean? And it's just a transliterated form of an Edomite. So Herod the Great is the descendant of Esau. And Herod the Great, the descendant of Esau, tries to kill Jesus, the descendant of Jacob. The same thing's going on. The carnal is always opposed to the spiritual. Always. That's the thing you see. Not only in Esau, he gets it wrong and his children do as well. Every decision he makes is wrong because he's wrong. It's not life. It's him. There's two places in Proverbs where it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The carnal man, we think we've got it, but we don't. So we're making choices that seem to make sense, but they'll always end in death, not because life's hard on us, because we're the wrong kind of person. You know, Christmas season, it's Jesus in the manger. Jesus has come. The necessity of the incarnation, though, has to do with the fact that you and I are all born Esau's. It's not just him, it's us. It's us. We're born Esau. And we don't want to stay there. And that's the gospel. You know, the reason for Jesus coming is to save people like Esau. You know, as cute as our girls were when they were born, our prayers for them early and often were, God, would you save them early? Bring them to yourself so they can grow up knowing you. And you know what they're praying for their kids and what we're praying for grandkids is the same thing. Lord, would you bring them to faith early? Would you help them to be spiritual people informed by your spirit and your word? Because that's the thing we need. Jesus didn't come to be the baby in the manger and he didn't come just to heal the lame or the blind, but he came to make dead people spiritually dead people like you and me alive he was turning esau's if you will into jacob's and again we'll look at jacob later it's not that jacob is inherently good on his own it's that there's a there's a point in his life in which there's a reformation there's a point of regeneration and that's what you and i need we need a point of regeneration you know i hope for all of us there's that sense that there's a time in my life in which i had godly sorrow i realized i'm at odds with god and i said something like jesus save me because he does anyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved it's that simple christ has done the work we simply accept we trust we believe that what jesus has done is sufficient last word for us as christians you and i still have an esau We've got our old sinful disposition. And you and I can make decisions as poor as His were if, if we do what Paul says, if we're walking after the flesh. So what you see and joined on Christians in the New Testament is put to death the old, walk in the new. You and I as Christians, it's impossible to please God, Paul says in Romans 8, if we walk in our fleshly Esau nature. We're just as wrong-headed. We'll make the same bad decisions Esau did. We're supposed to walk after the Spirit. 
Our minds are meant to be renewed by the truth of God's word. You and I are making the decisions every day whether we live like Esau, the old carnal man, or the new spiritual man. That's the decision we make. So at Christmas, as you're thinking about the incarnation, as you're seeing the pictures of Jesus in the manger, remember that Jesus came to make dead people, spiritually dead people alive. That's why he came. He's not blessing nice people. He's making spiritually dead people like you and me alive. Father, thanks for sending your son. Thanks for the costly redemption that Jesus has provided for us. Lord, would you help us to draw near to you every day to honor you, to value you and the things and the people you value. Would you help us to hold out, Lord, to others too, the hope of salvation we have in Christ. Amen. Guys, would you stand? Can you get, do you still have those last two, Ben? Last two images. I'd like to read from Romans 5, 6 through 11 uh, before we start singing. Yeah, the last two there. Thank you. So hopefully this is your story and mine, okay? Let's read together. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we see saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Amen.